This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. How the heck does petitionary prayer work in a world where there's so much suffering and evil? Is praying for others just a religious, superstitious practice that does nothing at all except make the person praying feel better? If we don't pray for others, does God allow them to get sicker, lose potential rent money, and suffer in their addictions? Is that who God really is? Can we engage in prayer that is more effective, less harmful, and doesn't make God look like an unfair, stingy, and fickle jerk? If you are looking for a pioneering book on prayer that is thought-provoking, challenging, and endorsed by some of today's most well-known authors and scholars, then Divine Echoes is the book for you. Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Well, everybody, welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. So excited to kick off a brand new series here on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We're calling this, I think, the Censored Gospels series. It's going to be awesome. Oh, so much heresy, my friends. But before we jump into that, uh, let's do some introductions. I'll start. My name is Keith, uh, Keith Giles. I am the author of uh, the seven-part Jesus Un series and the recently released Sola Deus, What If God Is All of Us? And I am joined by my incredible co-hosts, Katie, Shonda, and sometimes Matt. Say hello. Hello, everyone. This is Katie Valentine. And as you all know, I'm a big fan of, you know, censorship and censored books. So <laughs> this is going way outside my comfort not, zone. Yes. I'm not a fan of censorship, right? No. <laughs> well, that's that's my little joke. No, we're, we're, breaking, <laughs> we're breaking open all, all of the good material here to talk about these censored books. Okay. I, I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian, and I love talking about, you know, Bible and almost Bible, which is kind of what we're getting into today. I am Shonda Ja. I'm the author of Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. I am particularly excited about today's episode because I grew up on the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, and Judas is obviously the hero of that musical. So I am excited about our conversation today and send in a little shout out to December while she's on sabbatical from the show. Yeah, and I'm Matthew J. DiStefano. I, I I second that shout out to December. We can't wait to see you. But in the meantime, we have some good stuff for everyone. We have coming up, I don't know who wants to talk about it, who wants to introduce it, but maybe I will. We have some guest hosts. We've done it before and we'll do it again. Um, we don't have traditional heretics of the week this time like we did back in the day before Shonda was even a guest on this illustrious world-renowned podcast shonda was a guest host and i what what was the topic i don't even remember shonda do you remember i think it was the decolonized series so i was representing no, I know, api but, stuff right 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 um it it just seems it seems like yesterday but it also seems like a million years ago um I believe we were talking about asian american interpretations yes theology yeah I, yep. correct and and it was, was, yeah. expert in Yes, yes, yes. And we're we're kind of doing it again, except these are the uncensored Gospels. Maybe not all of them are technically Gospels, but we'll get into that at a later time. Who wants to introduce this first one? Well, um, I'm happy to, but I got to go back to Jesus Christ Superstar first. <laughs> yeah, we're not done that. <laughs> I also really like listening to Jesus Christ Superstar, and I feel like this might be a slippery slope for many people. Like, oh yeah, once you like this musical, you can start talking about all things deconstructing did maybe that- it's why you and i didn't have to deconstruct we grew up on jesus christ superstar oh, it did it for me yeah <laughs> Matt, Matt, are you fans have you have you watched jesus christ superstar there was a I, tv version I, of john legend i think yeah the john legend version was that's the one amazing. that's the one i just saw recently and it was really good uh I, yeah. I was really impressed with that but i will say i really i really love um talking about judas um, just a little plug. And this fits. This actually fits, I think, what we're yeah. saying. Um, I love the movie called Mary Magdalene um, with Joaquin mm-hmm. Phoenix. We talked about, we did an episode about this. But um, yeah. the character of Judas in that movie, I, I just love the way they handle Judas in that film. So I think it's so funny that Judas is such a fascinating character, I think, right? Um, yeah. And especially if he's treated the right way, like in Jesus Christ mm-hmm. Superstar or Mary Magdalene. 
Um, or maybe even in this episode, right? We're kind of like a little <laughs> teaser there that we're getting ready to Not just about. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, Matt, do you want to finish? You were, you were kind of leading up to explaining, kicking off this episode. Well, we're we're gonna. It's not gonna be a traditional episode. Our topic is gonna be centered on our wonderful guests um, in each episode, who are experts in their field. Yes. So they've either studied um, many of the gospels, uh, uh, Gnostic gospels, some non-Gnostic gospels, non-canonical, whatever sexy or unsexy words you want to put on it. Uh, they, they, Censored, yes. They were censored. And they've been censored in one way or another. Not sure if there's a grand conspiracy. We'll get into some of that. Um, but yeah, this this, this first one, um, like we just mentioned, Judas, our favorite scapegoat maybe, right? Um, mm-hmm. Kind of the, the bad guy, infamous. But is that the whole story? Did you know there is a gospel of Judas? And <sighs> our, yeah, gasp, where's the heresy button on that one? <laughs> Uh, so our our guest is going to talk about um some of these are some of these censored texts are a little wacky Mm -hmm. some are super interesting uh in in this series we do have thomas which keith i know you have a a minor obsession with thomas a little bit um a little bit and may even even if you can find a publisher have a book on thomas down the road that's the plan Um, yes I, i have it ready I don't know who. It's a shame you don't know you, any publishers, though. It's, it I'm, really, I'm shopping I mean, it around. I'm shopping it around. <laughs> self-publishing is always an option. Um, oh dear. <laughs> which is technically actually. Actually, what we that do. is what I'm doing. It is self-publishing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know how much we want to say at the onset, or if we just want to jump in and let the guest introduce themselves yeah. and why this is important to them. And I, I honestly think that. Given the demographic of the show, all you lovely listeners out there, this is going to be right up your alley because, you know, what we do on here is we we uncensor the censored and we we bring the heretical ideas to the forefront. Yes. Bring it on. Cool. I think I think that says it all. Yeah, we're going to cover all the nuts and bolts of what this is, um, who Judas might have been to early Christians um, with our heretic uh, and co-host of the week. It's the heretic of the week. Hi, I'm David, and in some contexts, I'm definitely a heretic, and in others, not so much. Hi, David. Hi, David. <laughs> well, David, uh, welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour. Thank you for being our Heretic of the Week. Um, and your last name is Bracky, right? Is that how you pronounce it, or is it, how do I pronounce it? That's correct. Yep. David Bracky. Um, well, so um, we always want to know... Why would anyone call you a heretic? And tell us a little about yourself as well and your background. Um, Well, I think right now, if I'm called a heretic, it would probably be because I still use the word Gnostic, which a lot of um, scholars, especially cool, hip, up-to-date scholars, do not wish to use anymore. So uh, that's probably my most heretical characteristic. I love that that's a, um, a, a heresy against the academy more than against, you know, God. <laughs> correct. Yes. Uh, but this is the thing. Where? Um, well, we could talk about that. Where does the concept of heresy come from? And it may be more an academic thing than than a God thing in the end. Mm-hmm. But, um, but anyway, in most contexts, I'm not at all very heretical. I went to, you know, very standard places to get degrees. And now I'm uh, a professor of history at the Ohio State University and uh, not at all seem as I.O. And uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, so that's what I do. And I teach the history of Christianity there, everything from um, a survey, that, as I call it, from Jesus to Joel Osteen to specific courses on early Christianity, Gnostics, and other heresies and stuff like that. I don't know, for, there's, for a lot of um, evangelicals, even studying like early Christian history is is pretty heretical. So it kind of depends on what circles you're you know you're roaming in. And um, you know, with with respect to <laughs> to heresy in the academy, Shonda, you know, God wants us to do away with labels. <laughs> I think Dave is super heretical by by calling calling Gnostics Gnostics. <laughs> That's right. A lot of my students who are good Christians, even just teaching a historical approach to Christianity, makes me something of a heretic. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're praying for you yes. though, so it's okay. 
I sure hope so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, that's all it takes really is when you start, if you come from a very conservative evangelical background, and I did, then certain things you hear uh, on the academic side can kind of scare you because you've been told a different version of some of these things. Um, and it can really, really send you for a loop. So I don't know if you, have you encountered anything like that? Oh yeah. I mean, every, every time I step into the classroom, um, students, um, see Christianity in the title of a course and they, especially if they grew up Christian very much in a church, whichever church, they feel as though they know already what's going to be in the class. So they think about it as kind of like, well, I already know this. And, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, something of a shock to some of them, but not all of them to, um, ask questions about early Christian writings and Christian sources of all periods in a historical way rather than in a obedient uh, theological way. Um, but most of them survive. They seem to... <laughs> their, their lives go on and they, they seem to be happy. So uh, what can I say? I, I, I don't think I've really... Uh, you know, upset people so much that they lose their faith or anything like oh, that. Oh, that's but, good. Uh, but it is. I was about you know, to ask: is, Have you recruited uh, anybody to the team of heretics? Well, I've recruited people to the to the academic study of Christianity, and if you think of that as heretical, yeah, um, it's a slippery slope. Very it's few of them. <laughs> yes, very few of them decide they want to become Gnostics. Right. Um, you know, but um, but a lot of them do get interested in various heretical forms of Christianity. Um, Gospel of Thomas, always something that attracts a lot of students, especially my students who have interest in more um, Eastern forms of religion. They see a lot of resonance, resonance with uh, things like Buddhism and so on that really appeals to them. So, uh, you know, so a lot of them have their spiritual lives altered, but yeah. um, it, but um, not, not a lot of them have it completely destroyed, I think, but yeah, yeah. I certainly don't aim to convert any, anyone to anything except good, rigorous historical thinking. Right. That's my main. Yes. Yeah. So this is really exciting because when we were doing our series on, uh, on the Bible and we kind of talked about what we jokingly called the B sides, we realized it would be a huge gift to get some area experts, some folks who have really dedicated themselves to those particular texts. And I'm just thrilled that you're here. Um, so yeah, exactly what you're talking about is why I think we're all delighted that your particular brand of heresy slash non-heresy uh, is, is why is, is going to be a part of the conversation today. So I wonder if you'd mind uh, sharing with us a little bit, um, you, you're working with the gospel of Judas. You, how did you get into it? Uh, what was it that kind of drew you in and where should we start in understanding what it is, how it fits with the Bible, how it doesn't, anything you want to jump in with, we'd be thrilled to hear. Well, like uh, most people who are interested either in early Christianity in general or Nazism in particular, I was just completely excited when the publication of the Gospel of Judas happened in 2006. Uh, you know, we had known, we being modern humans, had known for a long time that there had been or was a Gospel of Judas, uh, because an early Christian scholar and opponent of Gnostics named Irenaeus of Lyon in the late 100s, around 180, mentions the Gospel of Judas as something that the Gnostics composed. But, um, you know, we didn't have it. And, uh, and some people were even, some scholars had argued that it's probably not Judas Iscariot, that it could be Judas Thomas, you know, the Judas who, you know, the Gospel of Thomas is actually um, attributed to a Didymus Judas Thomas, right? And, but nope, there it appeared it in um, 2006. I mean, it had been known to a smaller group for some time earlier. And like most people who study this stuff, I mean, the most exciting thing that can possibly happen is something new uh, to be discovered, uh, a new piece of the puzzle, so to speak, of early Christianity. And uh, so I became very interested in it. I started including it in my teaching. 
Um, I watched scholarly debates about it and so forth. And then um, fortunately, I was invited by uh, the Anchor Bible series, which is published by Yale University Press, to write a commentary on the Gospel of Judas. And it now has appeared, and it is the first commentary in the Anchor Bible series that is on a text that is canonical for nobody. Um, and so <laughs> it's, a, it's a landmark in that series. They added a heretical text wow. to you know, their fabulous volumes on you know, Matthew, Mark, Genesis, Exodus, all these other things, Galatians. Uh, you know, so there's lots of these. And... Uh, so anyway, that's, uh, you know, previously I'd just been reading it out of interest and teaching, and uh, that project made me dive deeply into it, obviously, and essentially read everything that was written about it. Um, and I think if you're interested in the Gospel of Judas, which is not very long, I should say, so it's very easy and short to read, um, the main thing to know about it is that it is probably the earliest datable Gnostic text that we have, and uh, it gives a kind of short little primer on the basics of Gnosticism, which Jesus explains to, to Judas. So it's kind of a dialogue between Jesus and the disciples and Judas himself about, in the Gnostic view, who Jesus really is, why he came here, what God sent him, and, and the like. So it's really an important text. That's super interesting. I didn't I didn't know it was our earliest Gnostic text. And I remember when this first um, became public, I was in the middle of my PhD program and I was leading some four-week Bible study at a progressive church. And I thought, I showed up and I said, my job is relevant. Look, <laughs> we can talk, we can talk about a new a new thing that has happened. So I was very relevant for about a month, you know, and then it kind of faded away. Um, but for I, I was rereading the Gospel of Judas in, in English, and I was thinking just as I was reading it today, this stuff is far out. And it is really, to me, written for insiders. Like it's actually challenging, even as a scholar, for me to read it. And I, I think. What in the world are these people talking about? So give us a little, you know, you gave us a little bit of a synopsis. So like, what are the, what are the sort of the clues in here? Who is this written for? Why are they writing it in this way? Like there's a lot of references to kind of this, you know, inner knowledge to stars and angels and not secret stuff. Like what's happening? It's, uh, yeah, in some ways it's very inside baseball, as we would say, right? It's um, got a lot of jargon and so on because it is at heart a, what we call a polemical text. It's a text written by some Christians, namely Gnostic Christians, to criticize other Christians uh, of their day. Uh, so not only so-called Orthodox Christians could criticize others as heretics, so to speak, so could Gnostic Christians. They could say these other Christians are totally wrong. So um, what it is, is a series of conversations that Jesus has first with all the disciples and then with only Judas set before his crucifixion. And in it, uh, Jesus begins by seeing the disciples celebrating what's clearly a Eucharistic-like ceremony. And he laughs at this. He laughs at what they're doing. And they say, why are you laughing at uh, you know, at what we're doing, you know, by this, you know, we praise your God. You are the son of our God. And Jesus says, I am not the son of your God. You don't know, really know who I am. And the only one who really knows who Jesus is, is Judas, who says that he has come from the Barbalo, the Barbalo Eon. And this is when the scholar of Gnosticism pricks up his ears and goes, oh my goodness, it's a Gnostic text because one of the distinctive features of Gnosticism is the belief that the ultimate God, who is not the God who sent Jesus, but a God far beyond anything we really know, uh, has evolved or emanated into a series of lower beings, the first and most important of which is an eon called Barbalo. So once we see that, that Judas that the true answer of who Jesus is, according to this gospel, is that he came from the Barbalo Eon. We know we're in Gnostic world. And uh, what happens from here is really a, um, 
uh, a real criticism by Jesus of what the disciples do in their worship and prayer life. But of course, the real target of the polemic is not the original disciples, but the contemporary Christians of the middle of the second century who claim to be worshiping God in the way that the original disciples did and have the authority of the original disciples. That is what we call the proto-Orthodox or mainstream church. And uh, Jesus heavily criticizes them. And then um, he uh, then has a long conversation with Judas where he explains to Judas the truth that there is this great God called the invisible spirit, that that's who Jesus really comes from, that the God who created this world named uh, Sakla is really a um, demonic evil figure, a rebellious angel who's rebelled against God, and that, G that Judas's task is to help bring about the end of the evil rulers of this world, cosmic rulers of this world, by sacrificing the, the human being who bears Jesus. And this somehow will initiate a kind of cosmic catastrophe, reorganization that will overthrow the current world order and allow the true believers, the people who really understand everything, to receive salvation, other people to be punished. And uh, alas for Judas, he is now going to have to kind of run the reorganized cosmos in a way. He's not going to be able to go up to heaven or whatever. So having been told all of this, Judas is now in a position to know why he must do what he must do, which is turn Jesus over so that he can be killed. And that's what happens at the end of the gospel. So it kind of provides a Gnostic explanation for why Jesus had to die on the cross. And in so doing, why uh, especially the Eucharist, as practiced by other Christians in commemoration of that death, is misguided. Anyway, that was a lot of information. No, that was great. But that's the basic <laughs> gist of the work. And, uh, and yeah, that it's got a lot. That is insanely helpful. Thank you. Well, it's got a lot of technical terminology, um, but remarkably a lot less than some other famous Gnostic texts. I mean, the most other famous Gnostic text that seems to come from the second century, but we're not quite sure, is what's called the Secret Book According to John or the Apocryphon of John. It was found at Nag Hammadi and elsewhere, and it's very famous. There's four copies of it in Coptic, and it's probably, you know, next, you know, before the Gospel of Judas came, the text that everyone you know, that was the go-to text to understand what Gnostics thought. And it's even more filled with, you know, technical terms, highly philosophical jargon and stuff in a way that Judas um, is not. So. Yeah. So speaking of inside baseball um, and, and uh, some of this terminology and stuff, I want to just back up a little bit for, for our, some of our listeners who might be struggling to keep up with like, what the hell is he talking about? So can you... Man, we maybe should have done this in the beginning, but it, it doesn't matter. Um, can can you give us sort of a working definition of Gnosticism when you talk about Gnosticism? Um, because again, like I know all this stuff, um, it, it's like a totally different flavor and brand of Christianity than what we like you termed the proto-Orthodox or what we know now as Orthodox Christianity. But it was an early form of Christianity, and it was extremely unique and to us very weird. So help us understand what is this Gnostic uh, view of, and you've already touched on a little bit of it, but just you know, give us an overview of this whole this whole flavor of Christianity. Sure, um, and of course, you should know that I'm kind of giving my definition of Gnosticism, which sure. you know is a controverted topic in the world of scholars, but most will not disagree with what I. I'm about to tell you, <laughs> but some will, some will. Uh, is that um, when we talk about uh, Gnostic Christians or Christian Gnostics, we're talking about a group of Christians uh, in the second century, probably into the third, who differed with other Christians on very the very basic question of God. While most Christians then and now believe that the God you meet in the Bible, the Old Testament, you know, the Jewish scriptures, the God who is in Genesis, who 
you know, gives Moses the Ten Commandments, leads the Israelites out of Egypt, all that. That God is the father of Jesus, who sent Jesus to die for the sins of people as his Messiah. The Gnostics disagree with other Christians on this basic point. They believe that that God, the God you meet in the Old Testament, who created this world and uh, made covenants with the Israelites and so on, is actually not the ultimate God, but a lower, defective, flawed and divinity who's even hostile to humanity. And so they must s explain how this lower defective God came into being. And that's when you hear about the Gnostic myth, as it's called, that's the story that they tell to explain how this lower defective God came into being. Uh, and in the and they have actually different ways of explaining that. In the Gospel of Judas, this God of Genesis is actually was created by the ultimate God as a kind of lower angel, but he rebelled against God and tried to set himself up as the ultimate God. So the ultimate God is a higher, more spiritual being who can hardly even be named, but whom they will refer to mostly as the invisible spirit. And the invisible spirit really cannot be known directly by human beings. And so the invisible spirit has emanated from itself um, lower manifestations of itself um, and those we can know. And so what has happened is that human beings, um, for, very, for different reasons, they can explain this differently, have forgotten, <laughs> so to speak, that there is this higher God, and they have mistaken this lower defective God as the true God. And so what Jesus needs to do is come to us to give us the knowledge, that is the gnosis in Greek, this is where we get the word Gnostic, um, that this higher God exists and that we really belong to him or it, I should say, because it's probably beyond gender, rather than to this lower God that is worshipped by Jews and by most other Christians. So this is the basic and most substantive difference that and makes Gnostic Christians distinct among other Christian movements of the second and third century. Um, I, I should say that what is not distinct about Gnostics is believing that this world was created by not the ultimate God, but a kind of lower manifestation of God. Even mainstream Christians believed that. You find this in the Gospel of John, in the New Testament, in the first like line. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and it's through the Logos that the world is made, right? So, but what's distinctive about Gnostics is that this maker of this world is actually, if not evil, then certainly deluded, arrogant, mistaken. Okay, this is all amazing. And, you know, Katie and Keith have both studied this uh, a whole bunch. I mean, the the Gnostics. I'm much more of a layperson on this stuff. Uh, and mm -hmm. I read the Gospel of Judas for the first time last, uh, last night. I'm embarrassed to admit that. I know I should have read it sooner. But, um, you know, <laughs> today when Katie was like, I read it, and I was like, I, I've got a PhD in this, and it was a little confusing. Um, but... Uh, so that that made me realize I didn't have to be completely embarrassed about the fact that it was very confusing for me to read too, even though it was short. And I think it would be really fun for the audience to take a swing at it, just so you can get a little taste of um, of what it's like to try to make sense of it. But my big driving question after having read the Gospel of Judas is: Is Jesus that mean in all of the Gnostic texts, or is he specific? <laughs> that mean in the gospel of Judas dude he's like looking at them for worshipping him that was not a kind human being tell me what's going on there help me understand it he's kind of a dick yeah yes um, the, the, Jesus in this text does not come across as gentle Jesus meek and mild no. who loves and you know says let the children come and sit on my lap and all that kind of stuff no uh, this is as I said it's a polemical text it's a text of judgment um, so, you know, even in the canonical Gospels, Jesus has times when he's not 
very nice. I mean, he goes into the temple and overthrows tables and stuff. Uh, he says, you know, I, in, I, I think Luke, I come not to bring peace on earth, but a sword, right? You know, stuff like this. So he says kind of aggressive things. This gospel is aggressive, judgmental Jesus, just about through the whole thing. Um, and remarkably, uh, Jesus does a- Just as an a, aside, is this why he reminds me so much of my mom? I have no idea. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, your mother is probably misunderstood in some ways. And, <laughs> you know, we should give her the benefit of the doubt. And Jesus you know, is just Scottish. <laughs> that's all. Yeah, well, there you go. And, you know, maybe your mother is just having a bad lifetime and mm. she's nicer at another <laughs> incarnation. Yeah. And so, too, Jesus, I would argue, at least in, in this text, would probably be nicer in other situations, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, but in this situation, he's not very nice. And yes, he laughs at people in a kind of derisive way, yeah. um, which probably goes back to uh, a tradition of divine mocking laughter that you can find in the Psalms. I think Psalm 2, uh, God laughs at his enemies uh, when they are destroyed. So there is a, yeah, there's an edge to this Jesus. And you don't see in this, I mean, this text is so relentlessly judgmental and critical of other people that some scholars have argued that it doesn't believe anyone can be saved, so to speak, except for a small group of Gnostics who are like predetermined, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, but that's like saying, you know, taking one sermon out of a preacher's repertoire from you know 50 sundays which is all judgmental and saying he doesn't believe anybody can be saved it's one another week he's probably saying oh yes you can here are the things you can do so this is a very i mean this is an a text by an angry author who is angry at other christians and believes that these other christian leaders are leading other christians to their spiritual deaths and so this is not a time for a happy Jesus. This is a time for a angry, judgmental Jesus. I love that framing of the urgency of the moment. Uh, that's super helpful because likewise, my mother thinks it's pretty urgent that I not be so stupid. So well, <laughs> well analogized. Thank you. Yeah, and you definitely pick up on, um, in, in, as you said, in, in Judas, these kind of like the tension between sort of these different flavors and varieties of Christianity that were going on, right? These the plural Christianities, plural that were going on um, in the first couple of centuries there. And so, yeah, you pick up on it and both sides, right? You pick up it, you, you, you get it from, you get it from this text, you get it from like Philip or, or Thomas. You also get it from the gospel of, of John. You get it from some of the writings of, G, of, of Paul that there was this sort of like, no, we're right. No, they're, we're, they're, they're wrong. And a little bit of back and forth going on there uh, as well as, as you said, Irenaeus and others um, going out of their way to condemn different texts and different uh, ways of thinking. So in all this tension, um, I, 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 I'm trying to figure out where I want to go with this next, with my next question. But I think, um, I think what I want to ask you is, um, even though there were these kind of factions going on between what you're, what you've just defined as Gnosticism and proto-Orthodox Christians, um, even within Gnosticism, there are varieties, correct? Because there's, if I'm like, so Judas is a Sethian Gnostic text, right? But there are other flavors of Gnostic, uh, beliefs and texts as well. So can you briefly talk about that a little bit? Like the differences between like, you can't just use Gnostic as a blanket statement, right? There's different, different kinds. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Um, so uh, I'm an advocate within the scholarly conversation of this topic of in fact, restricting the term Gnostic to only the people that others refer to as Sethians. Yeah. So only to the Sethian Gnostics. However, most scholars take a more, use the term Gnostic in a more expansive sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably the most important variety of Gnosticism from this point of view, other than the Sethians, which Judas belongs to, as so does the Apocryphon or Secret Book of John and so on, is what's called Valentinian yes. Gnosticism, which is indebted to a Christian teacher named Valentinus, mm -hmm 
who lived at about the same time as uh, Judas is was composed, probably died in the 160s. Um, and in Valentinian Gnosticism, they share with the Sethians the idea that the God who created this world is a lower defective God, but they do not give it the polemical evil edge to that God that the Sethians yeah. do. In the, they much more emphasize, the Valentinians do, that the ultimate God, who they will call the Father, mm -hmm. uh, is really in charge of everything. And so and whatever this creator God does is part of a plan that the Father ha is unfolding. Mm and according to some valentinians when jesus comes and the creator god sees jesus he actually understands who jesus is and is like oh i'm actually not the highest god there's a higher god who sent jesus and then he starts to cooperate with the higher god so the valentinians take a much less um uh negative view of the god of the old testament um they still see him as a kind of lower god but not uh evil, hostile to humans, all that stuff. So uh, in some ways, the Valentinians are less, if you want to put it this way, anti-Jewish, mm -hmm. right? Um, and therefore kind of more uh, amenable to the Christians they disagree with, right? Who are still going to say, no, 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 the Old Testament God is the highest God. There isn't a God higher than him. Um, so, Val and Valentinianism becomes a more kind of... Um, like the Gospel of Judas hates the Eucharist. Terrible yeah. thing. You know, you shouldn't celebrate the death of Jesus. That's, you know, bad, right? While the Valentinians like the Eucharist. They celebrate it. They interpret it in their own way. Yeah. So, but they still say you're saved. This is important, right? You are not saved by Jesus dying for your sins by like an atonement, right? right? Instead, you need to have the gnosis or knowledge of your true divine self and the true God and so forth and so on. Yeah. So th this is, these are two, the two most prominent forms of Gnosticism. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for do, saying that. And like, I, as I've looked at it too, I'm like, well, I probably would have been a Valentinian <laughs> Gnostic before I would ever even consider Cause the Sethians to me are like, man, these guys are harsh uh, and weird. Um, but I really prefer the Valent Valentinus stuff. So can I also back up too? And I, I, um, I know we're kind of backtracking a little bit, but um, you, Judas was only very recently discovered. And can you go a little bit into that? Like, how did why why was it lost for so long? How did we discover it? Um, like, I'm just curious about that. Right. Um, why early Christian texts are lost varies, but the gist of it simply is that it's really, really, really hard to keep ancient texts because. You know, this means for centuries, individual scribes had to be willing to copy these texts. And so once people aren't interested in reading them anymore, either because they consider them irrelevant or because they think they are actually heretical and they should not be read, they just stop being copied. And, uh, you know, and so we lose them. And in fact, I mean, you know, consider even just St. Paul, St. Paul, who everyone thinks is great. I mean, he must have written... A lot of letters, actually, not just the whatever, you know, the so many, the seven that we think are actually in the New Testament, and they're all gone, right? So uh, so things are lost. And the reason we still have the Gospel of Judas, or now we have it, is that at some point it was translated into Coptic, from Greek into Coptic, which is the um, last stage of the Egyptian language. It was copied on a codex in the probably early 300s on a papyrus codex, and at some point, that codex was buried and away from the Nile, far enough away that it didn't get wet, really, <laughs> because in Egypt, you know, they don't have rain. And so, uh, theoretically, things that are buried there can last forever, centuries. And so, from what we can tell, um, the codex that contains the Gospel of Judas was probably discovered uh, sometime in the 1980s. Wow. But the discovery story is not known. And 
when it was found, the people into whose hands it fell realized from the story of the Nag Hammadi codices that what they had was actually valuable. And what followed was a long attempt by people to get as much money for it as they could. And it's actually a rather depressing story, and it includes a certain amount of abuse of the text itself. It sat in a safe deposit box in a bank of Long Island for many years. It was put into a freezer, Mm. allegedly to preserve it, but that only made it worse. Um, So it just finally ended up in the hands of people who were willing to do what it takes to uh, conserve and publish it. Um, And so that's why it did not actually get published until 2006. So it's... um, it's a long and at times rather depressing story, but um, but now we have it, which is great. So still parts of it missing. Yeah. So there's still lots of holes, lacunae as we call them, in the in the manuscript. Yeah. So some some stuff about the Gospel of Judas, if you don't understand it, uh, as first-time readers often experience, uh, part of the problem is is that parts of it are missing, and presumably if they were there, we might actually understand it yeah i remain unconvinced i feel like if i had the entire text it would still be a mystery this is why we need people like you around well yes this is this is why you need to come to ohio state yeah you need to come to ohio state and take my class that's uh, you know it well it does seem like it's written not to persuade anyone i don't know you can you can correct me on that david but it to just for my kind of um i'm a very first century person not a second century person um but it doesn't seem like it's written to try to persuade but kind of written to bolster the convictions or the faith of the insiders yes uh literature like this that's heavy heavily polemical and critical the question always is does does this author expect his enemies to read this and go oh yes We've been wrong all this time. Thank you for telling us. Uh, Or is it mainly meant to, as you put it, bolster his fellow Gnostics to say, we really are the right ones and these other people are really, truly wrong. And obviously, I think the second, as you suggest, is the more realistic goal that this author had. Now, did he hope maybe that the kind of arguments he made would be convincing potentially to other Christians in his context with whom he disagreed? Probably so. I assume he wants the best for them and that they would that they would repent of their evil ways and stop celebrating the Eucharist and realize who the true Jesus is. But I think you're right. It's really about, yes, we're right. Those people are wrong. That feels so weirdly familiar with the kind of polemic and rhetoric that we have today, right? Like nothing new under the sun. But um, I'm curious if in your reading, not not only the Gospel of Judas, but other kind of Gnostic texts or within the Gnostic family, um, and maybe your students who are reading those, if there's any kind of personal value um, from these Gospels that you've seen, that either you have gotten or you've seen people get. And the reason I ask is I, I have a lot of people in my circles who tell me they're 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 practically gnostic. I see like gnostic societies around, you know, um doing things. And I think they're all very heartfelt and, and very legitimate, but I look at them and think I don't think we understand gnosticism in the same way. Um and so yeah, like is there personal value that people get from these texts now? Um well, I will say, and I even say this at the, in the preface to my commentary on Judas, I personally do not find anything of uh, no spiritual nourishment in the Gospel of Judas. It's pretty um, pretty negative, right? Um, and I will say in general that I think, um, as already Keith intimated, that Sethian Gnosticism is itself a little off-putting. And I think if any, if students take anything from the texts of that, it's their emphasis in some works on mystical contemplation and self there's there's a couple that really talk about how you can like go into yourself and find traces of the divine and so on but the people and and again keith has already um kind of mentioned this i think contemporary people who really get a lot out of gnosticism for themselves either do so from valentinian gnosticism and in fact if you look closely at the organized gnostic churches like the ecclesia gnostica of today really they're valentinian is what they are and right. um 
And if you put it, which I do not, in the same bo box as Gnosticism, the Gospel of Thomas is often something that speaks to people. Um, I don't find, think it's Gnostic because it, it doesn't have this kind of negative myth, you know, and it's, it's, I think it's just kind of Platonism is really what it is. But, um, you know, so it depends on the form of Gnosticism. But in general, Sethianism isn't a particularly, if you're looking for, you know, spiritual resources for yourself, is not as promising as Valentinianism or the Gospel of Thomas. And the Gospel of Judas, I regret to say, is, um, yeah, not really, in my view, a text that's very inspiring. Yeah. Really. Your personal edification is not uh, received from this from the Gospel of uh, Judas. No, though I mean, its edge is its question. It's what it's saying is that certain Christians are engaged in worship of a false god, and this worship is is deceptive to people and leading them to their spiritual deaths. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think this is a question that Christians can ask about themselves at any time in history. Is our worship productive? Is it leading people to their spiritual health or to, mm -hmm. you know, whatever? So I think the concern that it's the heart of it is a ongoing one for contemporary Christians. But I think as a I, it's not a text you read and go, you know, oh, now I feel so much better about God and I'm, you know, and my relationship with yeah. God. Yeah, and so that that is a curious part of it too, and, and I think this is along the same lines of what, like Katie's question, you know, about like, um, so it's saying Judas is saying we've got it right, everybody else is wrong. If you follow them, you're going to end up, you know, you're not going to make it, and whatever that entails, and yet they are not offering anything really compelling that would make you want to, well, yeah, you know, let's, let's follow this, this Sethian thing, because they've got it all right. And look how wonderful it is. It's not a, you don't get anything about it. Uh, that's like, these are the good reasons why it's just more about like, well, they're bad. And you don't, you know, you don't want to follow them because they're going the wrong way. So follow us. Um, and it, it, there are, there is correlation to that. I almost feel like it's like the gospel coalition uh, of the, of the time. <laughs> they're wrong. They're, you know, don't, don't listen to them, but like, when I look at them, I'm kind of like, yeah, but you guys are very happy. You don't seem like you're very welcoming. And, you know, and I don't know if there's any kind of overlap for that, if you see any of that either. But it's like it's lacking. There's sort of a reason why I'd want to be a Sethian. Yeah, no, no, indeed. There are there are um, uh, hints at why you should do this. At one point, Judah says about, and it uses the term race mm -hmm. for Oh, people, that's right. right. Yes, there's yeah. the saved race and the races that are not that's saved. Right. Judas at one point says, "What fruit? That is, what good thing does the saved race have?" And Jesus basically says, "Is that when the spirit that makes you alive leaves their bodies, their soul will be taken up and live. So they will live after their deaths, um, but those who do not will not. And so that you know, there's a powerful reason to join that group if you're persuaded by it. But yeah, there's, this is, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, everybody does different things in different moments rhetorically. This is a rhetorical <laughs> movement of judgment and other people are wrong. And if you don't get your act together and see the light, you're, you're, you know, doomed. Yeah. So. Yeah. I just can't imagine a Sethian worship service being something I'd want to sit through. <laughs> Well, if you want to know what it's like, there we have a text. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a there's a text called the Holy Book of the Great Invisible Spirit, and it's essentially a series of Gnostic hymns. Uh, there's also the three tablets of Seth. It has Gnostic hymns, so which have a lot of joy. Oh, okay. We are alive. Right. We see you, God. I mean, so so you just you know this this is like saying you know uh, I always it, it you know when I try to teach the history of Christianity and I come to like you know early Christianity America, if kids know anything, it's they know Jonathan Edwards yes. sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I'm like, well, you know, Jonathan Edwards said some actually had some really nice sermons yeah, about that. how yeah. he felt, you know, how, how he felt in tune with nature and he sees God's beauty in the natural world and so on. But that's the view they have of these people. And, and if all we had of the Gnostics was Judas, it would be very depressing indeed. But we have other stuff. Yeah. So That's, okay. don't be afraid to go look okay. at it. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I think the the one last question I have is, I, it was really interesting as you're talking about kind of there being an element of of judgment of, uh, you know, this is not a warm and fuzzy Jesus. Um, I did find myself wondering, are there are there cultural lessons to be learned? Are there things about the culture of the time? Were there spaces in which this kind of rhetoric was not uncommon? Um, I, I, I'm wondering if that's also part of it. Uh, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on that. Yes. Uh, well, the culture it's part of is early Christianity. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you know, early Christians definitely believed that Jesus was going to come back fairly soon. I mean, Paul thought his own lifetime, right? He'll, he thought he would still be alive and that this would be a horrible time. There would be warfare and famine and uh, and all sorts of, t- and there would be a judgment and people would be sent to hell who were not, you know, believers, right? So this is pretty standard early Christian stuff. Uh, they definitely believed that a world transforming event was on the horizon and it was not just the creation of a happy kingdom of God, but it also meant judgment and eternal torment, or I think for the Gnostics, just dissipation, just death for most humans, because most humans don't uh, believe in it. So this, you know, um, yeah, early Christians, this is just their thing. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And I and I do, I do find myself wondering, uh, <clears throat> are there any ways in which that's shaped by you know, they're living under the Roman Empire that they're, you know, are there are there ways in which, you know, they're they're living in the Middle East in the midst of, uh, you know, all of the political issues that are going on in that area at the time, even if it's not explicit, is that shaping uh, that sense of urgency yes. even? This, you, oh, definitely. Right. I mean, all of this comes out of um, early Judaism at the time, which you know, look, God in the Old Testament made a bunch of promises to the Jews, right? You will have your own nation. A king will rule in Jerusalem, a descendant of David, and none of this was happening. The Romans were in charge. Um, Yes, it is a, there's a deep, profound sense among some, not all Jews, but most early Christians that the world they lived in was simply wrong. And part of that is the Roman Empire and the way it was run and the inequality and the vice that they saw around them. If you want to, you know, read the book of Revelation in the New Testament, it is a damning indictment of the Roman imperial system as one that enslaves people, That you know. And uh, yes, they have a profound sense of the injustice that is in the world. And that's why the world needs to be changed dramatically. Yeah, thanks so much for that. Um, one uh, final really technical question, and you may have covered this, and if you did and I just forgot it, I apologize. Um, do we know where this um, was written? No. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, let's just say that I have, um, I and others have speculated that the most likely place is Rome. And uh, the important thing to realize, of course, is that Greek was the language of Christians all over the Roman Empire at the time, even though you might think in Rome people did Latin. But uh, the early Christian literature we have from Rome from the first, second, and early third century is all in Greek. Uh, When we look, and the reason I say this is because if you look for early Christian literature that has the ideas that Judas hates, <laughs> you know, the ideas that the Eucharist repeats the sacrifice of Christ, that current church leaders are the successors of the disciples and the like, it's mostly literature connected with Rome. So uh, that's why I tend to think Rome is a good hypothesis, but it has to be completely hypothetical, right? We just okay. don't know. Yeah. 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 Cool. And it's preserved in Coptic, so um, most likely Egypt. Well, that it was Coptic, Coptic there, most right? likely. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah. Uh, you know, some of the uh, we have very, you know, I mentioned this guy Irenaeus, right, who wrote in Lyon in 180, right? Lyon is in Gaul, 
modern day France, right? Well, the earliest scraps we have of Irenaeus's works were found in Egypt and probably date from around 200 or yep. so. So, so yeah. books traveled in the ancient world. Yeah. Uh, so and hot, hot, dry places without a lot of moisture preserving. That's right. Well. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the, all this stuff is found in Egypt because it's Egypt, right? If you, if you buried yeah. a copy of the gospel of Judas outside Rome, it would have decayed and gone or in France, it would have fermented using, which is organic <laughs> material. And, uh, it would have just decayed and gone away and been lost. But, uh, but Egypt, nope. Yeah. So it's good. Yeah. So I have another technical question too, and it gives from my personal curiosity. Because so you mentioned that Judas is one of is like the oldest uh, Gnostic text that we have, um, but you also said that Thomas, in as you understand it, is not not shouldn't be called Gnostic. So I'm just curious, how do Judas and Thomas compare dating wise? And I know, I know people can't agree on the dating of Thomas, but like in your opinion. How, how do the two compare? Oh, no, I, I think Thomas must be earlier, perhaps, but not much. Okay. So I, I usually think of Judas as being from the mid-100s, sometime between like 130 and 170, because uh-huh. it's known to this uh, Irenaeus guy around 180. And, uh, you know, a lot of the rhetoric that it talks about is found in texts from that period, yeah. 130 to 170. Uh, Gospel of Thomas is, of course, a complicated thing because clearly the copy that we have that's complete is also from the fourth century, and there's no reason to think it hadn't hasn't been like revised mm-hmm. a little. Um, but I I I think it must be from the early 100s and potentially certainly earlier than than Judas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, some people think that it's pre 100. Um, yeah, but it's hard yeah. to say. So anyway, but no, I think it's very early. Yes. When I said early as Gnostic text, I was definitely meaning Sethian Gnostics. Uh, and the reason we can date Gospel of Judas is because someone names it, yeah. right, in 180. It's not impossible that other Gnostic texts that we have from Gnostic Gamadi are, in fact, earlier than Judas, but we can't know yeah. that uh, in the way we can for Judas. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate it. David, this has been amazing. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. As someone who grew up in Akron, Ohio, I want to just note for the record that great intellectual work (laughs) is being done in Ohio, regardless of what some of the politicians make it look like. Thank you for doing it. And thank you for keeping that work alive in that place I love. Yeah, no, Ohio, uh, Columbus, especially the, the the cities in Ohio remain great places to live. <laughs> Columbus, Cincinnati, Cleveland. I would live in Akron. Absolutely. Amen. Great things. <laughs> I'm a thank you so much for being here, David, because my cra- the crash courses I have to give myself in second century Christianity and Gnosticism are like pale in comparison to what you just uh, gave us. So I'm very grateful. Thank you. Great. It was great being here. I love talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much, David. Wow, so fascinating, David. Thank you so much for being our uh, resident expert on the Gospel of Judas. Uh, very fascinating. Um, people might want to go out and, and find a copy and read it. I think you can find it online for free. Uh, yeah, so yeah, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. But yeah, check that out. It's really, really cool. And this was a great conversation, great way to kick off this series. Um, and we have a lot more coming up, so strap in. We, do do we any do. of you feel differently about Judas? I, I honestly, I honestly, this is what I think about Judas. I think, I think there were messianic expectations and I don't see him as a bad guy. I see him as like, nothing's happening. So I'm going to press, I'm going to press the issue. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that when it went south in the way he imagined it going, like I, I kind of forced the leader's hand. We're going to overthrow. We're going to have the kingdom of God. And it didn't work out so well in the way he thought. And then he felt terrible. And so yeah. I think he gets a bad rap. I don't think he was trying to just, I, the way I was taught about Judas is like, he sold him out for just a handful of shekels. Yeah. And so he's just, he's just, right. you know, but then it's like, no, really, I think there's a lot more to the story than that. Right. Yeah. And that's the, honestly, that's what I found fascinating in the, in that movie, Mary Magdalene, the way they treated Judas was he wasn't the evil scheming, you know, um, kind of disciple. He he had a very, um, very heartfelt reason for what he, why he did what he did. And so it made him really sympathetic. You could really understand why, you know, it, for him, it wasn't a betrayal. It was more like the kingdom of God has to come. And if I have to force this to happen, you know, cause he really wanted the kingdom of God to come. Um, and he had his reasons for that. 
And uh, so that kind of made sense. It, it made a lot, well, a lot more sense and made a much more sympathetic character. So, um, yeah, I agree. I think, I think it's a good idea to go back and, especially when you understand, you know, we've talked a lot about um, Rene Girard and mimetic theory and the whole scapegoating thing. And then when you recognize that there's more than one scapegoat in the, in the story, right? It's not just that Jesus was scapegoated, but he was, but Judas becomes the scapegoat for the Christians. And it just, we don't want to perpetuate that, right? I think it's a good idea to kind of step back and rethink the whole idea of scapegoating. I would say the, just rethinking about the gospel of Judas again, which is, you know, relatively recent kind of into, into our consciousness. Um, yeah. We haven't had that translated for a really long time, uh, but it made me realize that I, I've never, I haven't really thought about Judas that much other than a foil to kind of move the story forward, right. but how the, the gospels really don't give Judas a lot of attention. Like, except for the betrayal, except for the 30 pieces of silver, we don't get a lot of kind of motivation. We don't get a lot of nope. dialogue. Nope. He's not one of the kind of inner circle of Jesus. Yeah. And it's not like we get motivations for almost anyone in the Bible. It's just like not a concern of the ancient world. Um, they speak through their actions, not through their like internal dialogue. But just thinking about the gospel of Judas, you get a lot more of that. And so it made me just kind of reflect a little bit on the on Judas in the gospels, whom we just don't know much about. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that's very significant about the Gospel of Judas, as far as I'm concerned, is it has a mean Jesus, which is just like Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> I feel like that's my big takeaway. Yeah. Very Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice might have had access to this Gospel. Long um, before the rest of us did. Yeah. Long before everybody else. So you think Jesus is mean and Jesus Christ Superstar? I think, watch it with someone who's not Christian. Oh, He's, he's yeah. direct. I watched it with Nabil and he's like, oh, I do not like Jesus. <laughs> and I was like, that's not. And then I realized the only reasons I was okay with how Jesus was acting was I already had a narrative for him that right, pre-existed yeah. that show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, re we read. I don't, know, I don't know that I wish to deconstruct my Jesus Christ superstar, damn it. <laughs> that's the next series. Um, the next series will be deconstructing musicals. Deconstructing religious musicals. How many? Oh, I am happy about? to deconstruct Godspell, but that's a whole other story. Well, we can do Godspell. We can do the Technicolor Dreamcoat. We can do oh, yeah. Jesus Christ Superstar. There you go. That's the next series. Let's do that. Fun series. I would totally do that. Why not? The theology of musicals. Yes, I'm here for it. Unhappy. Yes, but I'm thrilled. <laughs> the the only musicals I like are done by Lin Manuel Miranda. That's oh yeah. <laughs> Hamilton. I'm sure those will be deconstructed. Like, oh, we can deconstruct Hamilton if you want. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually liked In the Heights better, but sure. Yeah. I can too. Yes. You got me that CD for Christmas one year. Yay. In the Heights, yes. Introduce <laughs> me to it. Well, this, is, this has been a fantastic way to kick off this series. And since December is not with us right now, I guess I will tell all of you lovely listeners about our outdated website that you <laughs> can so go to good. right now. It's a time now. capsule. <laughs> Do you want to know what websites looked like 30 years ago? No, it, <laughs> no, it actually it looks good. I'm, I'm pretty sure Derek is still on there. Yeah. Yeah. And our latest episode is April 26, 2021, if I remember. Yeah. Oh, but, ancient. but, but if you order a t shirt or a hat or a sweatshirt, that is all live and active. So, yes. if and you, they're if really good. That, and they're awesome. They're great. Yeah. Pillows. And, the pillows are mm, chef's kiss. Th they are. Although, <laughs> mine's in a closet right now because my wife is low key embarrassed by it. Oh really? Because not everyone if it mine says honor the Lord and if and it, it if you don't know the joke the spears you're, the spears you with the spears yeah. and it's from numbers. Uh-huh. Um when Phineas drives a spear to it. Oh, well, if you sex. don't know the verse you, you don't know the joke so then it just looks like yeah we have these cringy Christian pillows but I think that's part <laughs> of the joke, right? Yes. Right. So pick up all that heretichappyhour.com. I honestly don't know if we'll ever update the website but I think the the longer it becomes unupdated the funnier it gets. Yeah. <laughs> can we get can we get new merch that says like those big wall hangings, but instead of saying blessed, it could say like unblessed or cursed. Oh, so that's I, would totally, good. I would totally hang that. And abandoned. Then I'm taking a TikTok How about abandoned? 
<laughs> oh man. <laughs> Hashtag Judas is my hero. Right. Yes. Okay. There you go. Well, let's think uh, about that. That's a good idea. We could have a ba- the, the, the bad the baddies of the Bible. Okay. Bless instead of bless this home. All right. So I could I could go off on a rabbit hole here. But if I had that, I would then take a photo of it and I would post it in Heresy After Hours, which is our free Facebook group for anyone who's in any level of deconstructing or reconstructing. So if you're not a member of that group, come on over and join us. And uh, yeah, you just search in the Facebook search bar, uh, Heresy After Hours, there's a couple thousand people in there. People make wild and fun comments. So you're missing out if you're not joining us. That's right. You'll be unblessed. And um, speaking of blessing, uh, we are very, very blessed by all of you who support us on Patreon. Thank you so very much. We appreciate you. And if you don't yet support the podcast, we would really, really appreciate it if you would head over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour, choose your tier, your indulgence level and uh, support our podcast. It means so much to us. It allows us to keep doing what we're doing. Um, And in exchange, uh, you will get, you'll receive, you'll unlock so many amazing, cool bonus uh, conversations, interviews, episodes, uh, lots of cool stuff. You won't even believe it. And you'll get access to our private um, Facebook group, Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group. So go check it out. And uh, I understand that we have recently gotten a rating and review from Judas. So if you want to be like the cool kids, you should also give us a rating and a review um, on whichever platform you watch or listen to, sorry, uh, the Heretic Happy Hour. It is how people like you find people like us. I don't don't want the show to be video because then I got to get ready for it and all that. I had a moment where I was like, oh, thank goodness we don't do that. Yeah. <laughs>